Testing. Okay. <laughs> Yet. Yes. Yet. Bring the paint. Okay, let me, uh, let me open a little word of prayer, and we'll uh, dive into, uh, Father God, thank you so much. We just love you so much, and we just are so um, just overjoyed just to be presence and to be in the fellowship. Sweeter than that, and to be able to have your spirit just work us through us. Uh, passages that just act us in such significant ways. Father, I just pray your spirit will work, giving us uh, the fullness of perspective as it relates not only to the context of uh, what Peter is addressing to his listeners and his readers, but also to our own personal lives in application and even specification from the woman. Father, we thank you for uh, just the grace of life and um, discuss that term today significant for us into on eternity but also in the lives and daily basis and always we have your word pray your spirit will lead in our time today and commit this again the uh, handouts that you have this is a part three of our ongoing study in first peter chapter three and we are working our way through the first seven verses of that and we've spent a few weeks, and uh, again, as uh, I've indicated, Mark and I sort of transition. We do kind of go a few weeks on, a few weeks off, and so the hope is Mark will be able to get through some of this today, and Mark will be able to tag team and continue. Next week, what I was just sharing is that the Holy Spirit always works in just a great way when you just allow the Spirit to be subject to the Spirit. It comes to His Word, and what happens is, is that the Word is so connected that you end up going back a little bit to go forward. So that's why I'm not worried if I don't finish, because Mark will cover it next week anyway as he goes. You know, and I always look at the first words that someone's going to start to teach with, you know, and so you have this word like finally, which finally what? So he has to go back. He has to go back and to kind of summarize, so just a preview. <laughs> so I'm not the least bit concerned that was anything. But uh, nevertheless, one of my objectives today is we're going to pick up where we left off a little bit last week with the first couple of verses. I'll go back through a quick review of verses 1 and 2. Of chapter three, and then we'll we'll pick up sort of in the new handout today with verses three and four with the beautiful spirit, moving that to the aspect of adornment, and then finally these very specific instructions to husbands, which I do want to make sure I cover that today. That's that's ever critical as I look at all of these verses collectively. Part of that is is what was driving sort of the, the point of the questions today. I keep going back, and as I've, we've studied this, the, all of the, the chapter 2, for the most part, with these specific instructions to believers with respect to their civic responsibilities, responsibilities that we have within the workplace to those that we are subject to, and now to the home, submission is obviously is the key. Submission within the overall arching theme of that, what is our ultimate example? And in chapter 2, there specifically points to that example as Jesus Christ. And as it relates to the home, this, this, the power, the significance of the Spirit to give us within, through Paul, even in Ephesians 5, I believe is foundational. Back to that. The other part that I want us to spend time as we get into verse 7 is that anymore we have so many different translations of Scripture that you get comfortable with a certain, whether it's an NIV, a New American Standard, King James, a New King James, and that's okay. But it is... It is very interesting to me is when you compare the various translations side by side, that key little words have significance for your understanding and perspective. So today I'm going to use that for the purpose of, I'm going to focus on the King James Version of verse 7 for purpose of primarily focusing on one word 
that I believe is critical to having a foundational understanding of God's plan is. For so as we have continued our study, we're, we're going to be camped in this middle section of application as it relates to our overall study of First Peter and where we've been at. And as I said last week, we are in uh, our second year that we've started this thing. And then our objective today is, and I'm going to start and end with the same objective, but I've kind of put it into perspective as, as both husband and wife. Because we've been studying about, we started last week with the wife, and we'll carry over to verse 7 with the husband. Objective is to manifest the servanthood of Christ toward your spouse. Specifically today as it goes from verses 1, to the, from the wife to her husband, to verse 7, which is the husband to his wife. The cross is not only the pattern for a Christian marriage, it is the only the husband or wife who has the mind of Christ will persistently see God would give us the grace. The do it aspect of it is, is that there's a overarching theme that I, I just want you to kind of just take a, a, a let's, let's open up your Bibles to First Peter, that God would give us the grace to do it. If it gets warm in here, we can open that back up. But it starts with, oh, in chapter two, uh, chapter 1, actually, where there is this, verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. There is this directive for us to be specifically about our behavior and our conduct to be holy. When you go forward into chapter 2, starting in verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when you speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. By the way, I'm reading out of New King James, for just for the record. But yours, it says, is to do the right thing is going to be this focus, which is this part of it. May God give us the grace to do the right thing. Go down a little bit further. Verse 15 of chapter 2. For this is the will of God, that by doing the right thing, doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of those back up. In verse uh, 20. For what credit is to you when you are beaten for the faults? You take it patiently. But when you what? Do the right thing. When you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable. And then finally, there is in this last few verses, verse 6 of chapter 3, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good. In other words, if you do the right thing. Not afraid with any, any fear. So this theme of just doing the right thing, it's by the grace of God that we have the ability to do that. So as we have broken down this passage of 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7, we have focused primarily on this overarching theme of submission in our homes, starting the first couple verses of this command for submission, and ultimately the motive for that submission, which is obviously for the glory of God and for His sake. And that extent of that submission as being demonstrated by application specifically went to the wives, that they would, by literally their, their chase and their behavior itself, in the silence of that, would literally have such a significant impact with ultimately the goal of that silence or that chaste behavior by the wife to win the husband salvation. In other words, by faith the husband would come by that, those literally that conduct or actions. And then finally... The applications that relates to adornment, and then, as we pick up today here, and then this aspect of this reason for the submission the same way. And so I'm going to go through these quickly. This is from last week that we covered. As far as, in, you know, it seems that there were three main parts, silence, adornment, and example, that were really the key three parts of this first six verses of chapter 3. 
the silence which characterizes the wives, whose husbands are both lost and hostile, adornment, which relates to the woman's attitude towards it, and then in verses 5 and 6 we pick up the godly women examples that Peter lists specifically with Sarah. And this is where we'll pick up uh, for today. What does this in the same way refer to at 1 Peter 3? We started with this last week, which was this likewise or this continuation of thought. It continues to, to bridge. When you look specifically at this, in, there was two places in this passage, verse 1 as well as in verse 7. It uses this term in the same way or likewise. And so it's the continuation of thought that takes us back to the same instructions that Peter is giving within that different sphere of life, whether that is the civic sphere, in this case the government, with the, secondly was within the workplace, and then lastly within the home itself, where we're at now, and then that will carry forward even where Mark's at. And these Christian wives, in these first couple verses in verse 1, it said specifically that they were instructed to submit to their own husbands. Now, rather than words... Again, review, wives are to, to witness to their husbands clearly through their behavior, and it's not what she says. It's God's principle for this, as we've seen it outlined, and we're going to go at length into this in Ephesians 5, is wives submit to your husbands. God's principle for this, I believe, is the overarching and foundational principle for all of this whole section as it relates to true understanding of biblical submission, what it looks like. Our culture today cringes at this. It is it's not acceptable for the most part. And as you would understand the context of this, and I'm going to even take it further from an application standpoint based on even like translations of the Bible, that you could take a word such as knowledge or understanding could have totally two different perspectives of application, which we'll get to. Because we, we didn't take the time to go through this specifically, but who does the disobedient... Um, who does disobedient to the word characterize? In this case, it was the unbelieving husband. And last week we looked specifically at it, it says that they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. There are references previously that they did not obey the word. And in previous references that Peter uses, is this is this non-believer that he's describing. And so in this case, the conclusion would be, is that in verse 1, uh, in part 2, in verses 1 and 2, that specifically relates to a believing wife in a relationship with an unbelieving husband. They are rest- wives are instructed to specific characteristics of that, to be faithful to their husbands, and that faithfulness was described, as we did last week, one, by their chaste conduct accompanied by fear. That chaste conduct, which was that of faithfulness and purity in character and conduct that we talked about, looking at Philippians 4 and 1 Timothy 5. And so we're to, this is where we sort of left off last week. And so let's go back and let's read first six verses. Uh, actually, the first read all seven verses to get, to get our one wants to get you going into this passage, and then we'll dive into it. I want you to read the passage in your translation. Read your translation too. Tell us. Okay. Christian wives are instructed to be modest, and we see in the in those passages that were read, with, as it relates specifically to adornment. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel, rather be the hidden person. Overall, we have this, this instruction for them to be aspect of modesty. And the adornment that's referenced in the passage that we said last week is this arrangement to put in order to make ready. It is a presentation outwardly in such a way that reflects an inward 
that is not so much focused on the outward. Now, the problem of looking at the outward appearances is, and I look at this as more I talk, talked about this last week, is that even though the instruction is to a wife, it, do, it is not in any way restricted to women. Okay? Here's a just a little extra credit passage in 1 Samuel 16, 7. I have it. I'll read it to you. It says, the problem of looking... Says, this is what the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Um, another one that I wanted to look at, which was this Luke chapter 16, verse 15. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So what we see is it's consistent that there was this really obsession, both in many ways, male and female, or outward appearance. In other words, the outward uh, adornment aspect of it. And so therefore, within the instructions that we see in passages, it's specifically, it's a matter of rebuke, and it's a matter of instruction that we see in both. Now, as it, the outward appearances is, is that, so it, Peter instructs married women about their priorities concerning true beauty. And just from an application standpoint, just on those, those supplemental verses that I gave you, that it would actually also not be restricted solely to... Now, what I'd like you to do is to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 3. It helps us to understand the Lord's indictment against this specific outward obsession with adornment. Isaiah chapter 3, we'd like to read that. You look at this and it just continues, continues going on with these descriptions. And I think what you can do is you can form in your, in your mind what it looks like. I mean, literally, it is from the top of the head, the hair itself, the... Um, the, the types of um, hair that it would be dressed, all the way through, and even within the hair itself, literally having various uh, adornment aspects of jewelry, except all the way down. And that is, as we look at this, what, it, what is the Lord's indictment of it is simply is that they reflected really the, the decay of the nations. In other words, this outward obsession was so consuming that it was that in itself is what they viewed as beautiful. It's, in other words, it's what it was all about. It, nothing was on the inside. And in that case, the contrast to that is that it really reflected that of the nations and was a total distraction or detracted for the glory of God. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, Likewise, women, to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by the means of good works as befits women making a godliness, a very a parallel passage to that. What should be the wise primary focus then? And that is, as Peter instructs then, from that it goes on to say, it is not the adornment. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Rather, in verse 4, let it be the hidden person of... Characterizes the inner beauty is this referred to as the gentle and the quiet spirit, or a disposition itself. Hidden person of the heart. Now, question I had asked in part of your discussions last week is, why is modest apparel, gentle and quiet spirit, why are those pleasing to God? Why is modest apparel, 
gentle and quiet spirit, why are those pleasing to Yeah. The answer is, when we look at that, is it's that in itself. The culture today, that's it's contrary to that. So what is pleasing to God is really what's all that's important. It is true biblical submission that manifests itself in the inner person of the heart. That is why he, he trans, um, moves forward into using it as this Old Testament woman of Sarah, which took a while to figure out why her. But this example is, is that it's this inner beauty of this quiet spirit. And this is really true biblical submission. So as we go forward on this, he says that with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are not afraid with any. Now, we, what we see within this, Sarah is named as this, as this model of submission. Why? What, what do you know about Sarah, and what, what are some of your thoughts about that? He doesn't tell us exactly. Here, he uses a word, thoughts. What do you know about Sarah? Okay. Thoughts. That she was obedient Abraham. Um, what's the clue? So you look for the clue. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women trusted in God. Okay, first clue. That's one is that clearly she is identified as one, as an example of that, that person that totally fixed her hope on God. There was a, a trust factor in God. As a result of that, also adorned themselves. Okay, so and therefore there was this gentle and quiet spirit because there was this balance of God first, that is the priority in fixing her hope on God, trusting in God, and yet there was this beautiful adornment that was there. Okay, And then it says, being submissive to their own husbands. And it says, so Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Okay, second clue. So I'll, I had to go back and find out where did she say that. Do you remember where she said that? It was, it was kind of in not a good spot necessarily, but well, that's why I'm a little confused. But then... Let's go there. It's, it's actually in chapter 18 of Genesis. So in other words, Peter specifically, through the Holy Spirit, refers to this time in, that he called, she called him Lord. Okay? And what is, this, what is the scenario? The scenario is when these angels, okay, these angels come, and it picks up, Remember the angels come and she happens to be there in the tent. You can pick it up um, in verse 10 of chapter 18. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, these are the angels, Sarah your wife shall have a son. Now, Sarah was listening, parentheses, in the tent door which was behind him. So she's off to the side. But obviously within an earshot of what's happening. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. There's that beautiful year you're talking about. Nothing wrong with a little gray hair, right? <laughs> well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childhood. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being also old also. Called him Lord. Husband Lord there. So, that's the clue that we have. Alright, well let's, from your knowledge of it, now, why Sarah? I think it's because of her continued obedience to her husband. 
here's, what do you know about Sarah? And this is one of the few passages that she actually had insight into something that was going to happen. Other than that, I'm going to guess she didn't. And what do you know about Abraham? He was all over the place, wasn't he? In fact, he was, God told him to go to this land. He had no idea. And what did she do? She went with him. It was a demonstrated, quiet and gentle spirit of submission. That I'm just saying it's continuous there here. Now, the word, my Lord, here's a conclusion, a thought. If you are saying something to yourself, because she did not verbalize that, how did she reference her husband? Instead of, Abraham, he's driving me crazy. You know, There was this respect to see, and it was, again, this submission that was demonstrated. I'm going to draw some conclusions because in a minute she's going to refer, Peter's going to refer to these daughters of, they become daughters of Abraham. Excuse me, daughters of Sarah. To me, that is this example of those that do submit biblically in submission to the priest. There, um, yes, there is actually there's two two things that I I was troubled with. Why did God choose? Why did in this case the Holy Spirit choose Sarah? Because there was the first one is that she was barren, in chapter sixteen, and so she brought in the maid. Okay, and then of course then in the second situation we have the same thing. Whereas the misrepresentation is is it to fully trust? And yet, the Holy Spirit, that's not the focus. This is this grace. In other words, in itself, and yet, it it says, this is to me critical, that help answer, because I don't have that answer. But what I do see is, is that if we do, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do the right thing. Right, no, no, no. No, that's why... I'm saying is that sometimes when we look at the, the context of the passage, we're looking at it from our perspective on things. That's why I say I'm going like, why Sarah? You know, because of those reasons. That's Yet, what it says in here is that if you obey and be like the examples, Sarah, this pleasing to God. Remember how we, well, if you were here, do you remember how we started this whole book of First Peter? Oh, yeah, on First Peter. Of that. If there's anyone that's messed up, I love that. But yet, that's another example again. The the oh, Marlene. Yes, yes, yes. Oh no, that's correct. I'm just what we're saying is is that at certain points, that we're, it's not. You're saying, Peter's saying she's a great example, and we're saying, well, but what about that time? But what about that time? Yeah, the thing I want to point to is if you even look at in the Hall of Faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews. There was a trust in, a fixed trust in God, by faith. So in this situation, we don't know all of the parts of her life, but yet, as we more you think about it, is the fact that she demonstrated that through her lifetime, as far as following Him, in probably some very challenging times and places where they went, was this example, and that's what's being recognized. And I go back to what it said that who trusted in God. This was this fixed hope that they had. I appreciate that. Back to this. I, you know, what is the key theme out of hope? Situation, it is wherever you're at. And I, I think that we see this continued focus on this. Women uh, follow their example of submission. Are her children, in this case, even as believers, we're, we're going to mess up. And yet we see that through so many passages in Scripture. But specifically, these two would help us to connect... Um, 
and affirm this comment about daughters of, of Sarah. What does that mean? And if you go back specifically to Romans 4, 5, 16, and Galatians 2, you see this relationship that's literally connected to that wife who fixes her hope, that in quote, because that is this key theme I pointed to earlier, seeding passages that just literally fix everything else. In other words, even as we transition now into verse 7, even verse 7 is always, it's still part of this larger passage in which Peter is just dealing with this focus of hope, doing the right thing, our outward behavior, our conduct, but also specifically the subject of submission. So, as we now trans. Uh, Go on to uh, 7. It says, You husbands, or likewise you husbands, or hus- your husbands in the same way. And this is the NAS. Nexus directly to the beginning of this thing. And again, has this meaning of, in other words, in these translations, it brings us together. It's connecting these things. But I thought what we do is kind of look at some of the, um, some of the unique differences as we now um, go on to chapter, verse 7. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, some of the unique features of Peter's instructions in see in verse seven. Now, just just observations to start with. So we'll list about four or five of these. First thing is is that as we look at verse seven, and as we look at verse seven, and even though it says likewise, okay. So when, you, when we see the likewise, or in the same way, you know you have to connect your dots going backwards to your previous, not only to verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1, the likewise, but you have to also then go backwards to into chapter 2. So when you see this thing, is, there's one thing that's noticeably different, is that up to this point, as we looked at the civic sphere, as we looked at the, the workplace sphere, and now as we transfer into the home, starting with the wife, what is interesting here is that there is submission, but with a reciprocal type of obligation. In other words, the husband has to do something. There is an action. Up to this point, again, up to this point, when it related to government, we didn't have an action. We didn't have an action in the workplace. Secondly, submission is not specifically called for. Rather, in this particular one, you almost see it as silent, or it's inferred that there is submission there. It says, likewise, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding or with knowledge. It doesn't say specifically to submit, even though previously we saw that word directly come out. So it's, it's really inferred. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Um, within the context of, the, of Peter's readers at this point, so I'm just going with there. Three, elsewhere, the one to whom submission is required is looked upon as the source of suffering. In this case, whether it was the government, in this case Nero, was this source of suffering. In the workplace, you had an abusing boss. And in the first few verses of chapter 3, it may have been the unbelieving husband that was a source of suffering to the believing wife. Got it? So in here, we do not... It's, it's different. It sets it apart. This one also that's unique is that Peter assumes that both the husband and the wife are believers. And this is this sharing together in the heirs of the grace of life. And I'm, even though there may be a view that this is not specifically referring to salvation, we're going to talk about that within the context of First Peter. Use of this term of grace, grace of life. A couple more unique features. You re, if you look at 
And I'm going to go back uh, all the way to chapter 2, verse 9, for a second. Someone read just verse 9 there for a second. Chapter 2. Okay. This proclaiming of the praises of Him, it is this proclaiming of the excellencies of Him. In contrast, in that you've, so when you have that overarching purpose or objective in chapter 2, verse 9, what's contrasted here is that there's a different outcome. Verse 7, what is the outcome focused on? Not on this proclamation of Christ or the excellencies of Him. What's the outcome? Verse 7, at the end there. What's the concern? The, it's, in this case, it's unhindered prayer, which makes it, again, a little bit different than what we've seen. Also, in contrast to the wife, the husband is not called on to be silent. Another one, husband is called upon to submit to one under his authority. Okay? Contextually, culturally, a real tough one. In fact, hard one for today even. Again, the husband is called upon to submit to one under his authority. That is very unique up to this point in these this passages, whether it started with the government, instructions to submit, the, the workplace, the master-slave, instructed to submit, and in this case, even to the wife, the believing wife, to the non-believing husband, to submit. In this situation, we're telling now the one in authority to submit. Okay, going back to the passage. It says to dwell. Let's, let's, let's go through this. It's kind of just come in. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding. What does dwell mean with? Dwelling mean? Live with, okay, that's your interpretation. You might say live with. What does that mean? Life together? It's a staying, right. It is. In fact, there's also an aspect of living with, which also takes into the context of intimacy, that would also go with that. So clearly when we see his instructions in this thing, it is. There's a passage that it, it, that's, it merits uh, just a quick look at because it helps describe the culture's perspective of marriage, which, frankly, they, in the culture, they really didn't really have, they had a very low view of marriage. And the passage is actually in Matthew 19. And I'll just give you a quick glimpse of that. Matthew 19. This is Jesus' is uh, is teaching, Matthew 19, from verses like 3 on down to 12. And there is this, it says, Now when it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any? He answered Jesus and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now here's the interesting response. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? So the contrast here, Jesus is saying, Look, it is permanent. It is a dwelling with, a staying with, forever. And yet, the contrasting view is, is that, but, but, but why? But why did Moses allow this to happen? So the point was, within this culture, is that these, specifically, these religious leaders, they had actually a very low view of marriage. Contrast to Jesus' perspective on marriage, which was this permanent, that's very clear in Jesus' teaching that we had, and this is this lifetime aspect of it. Now, comes this, does anyone have a New King James? James. 
Yeah, the New King James. Please read your New King James Version of that verse. Verse 7. Just the first part of it. Yeah. First, first part of it. Okay? Little, an older version of the, of the King James. I have it in your, in your handout. Turn to the, if you turn to the first page there, I kind of put it in the questions there. Knowledge. King, King, no, not the new. King James. In the King James, it will use this term knowledge. Interpret is one translation of that. Okay? He instructs them to dwell with their wives. And, and it says in the, I gave you three versions, I think, in that. I gave you a King James, and you can tell by the ease, you can tell by the honor, spelled that way. But it uses this word of knowledge as opposed to the word of understanding or even like in an NASB of, of being considerate. Okay? So if you just took those words, knowledge, understanding, and considerate, do they have different, what's, what does it mean to you? You see differences. It mean, to me, they have, I have significant differences. And I just wanted to focus, if I could, on this New King James Version, because for the purpose of developing a found, the foundational principles as we view biblical submission in relationships, I want to camp on this word knowledge for a second. That is, what do you think knowledge is referring to? And I believe what it is referring to is, in your mind, in my mind, I believe it refers to Scripture. Okay, so let's, let's take those three different words. Let's take understanding and let's take considerate. To live, to dwell with them with understanding. And I'll just use the New American Standard. Even the New King James uses understanding. That to me is sort of like you understand your wife. I believe that that is an accurate principle. That is, that's true. But as it, does it relate specifically to a primary and a secondary emphasis? Consider it. Does consider it mean something different to you than knowledge? What, what I, here, let's, let's find an evidence. Let's give, me, let's give you an evidence to that that helps. First of all, I'm not going to... They're all... They're, they're proper... Under, in other words, here I'll give you a sequence. In order for me to, ha- to live with glory in an understanding way and in a considerate way, I have to have a knowledge. That's, th- that's, sec- that's a secondary. Okay? Now, let's find an evidence that might be helpful for this, to, to, what Peter would give us. The first one is, let's go with second, um, let's go to 1 Peter 1.14. Not that he's used knowledge but what is the opposite of knowledge? Ignorance. Okay, so let's go find the ignorance that we see. First Peter 1, verse 14. First Peter 1, verse 14 says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. So it's the opposite of knowledge. When you were not saved, you didn't have understanding of God's word. You were ignorant. Chapter 2, verse 15 or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Whoops, wrong one. Okay. That you put to silence the ignorance, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So again, knowledge contrasted with foolishness or ignorance. All right, go to Second Peter. Second Peter, starting in verse 1, only a couple of pages over. Starting in verse 3. 3. Okay. Through the knowledge of Him. 
skipping over to verses 5 and 6, also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. Chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Now, the, all, all I'm submitting to you is, is that you, when you have a translation, it is, um, it's the foundational, Mark, and you've got to build on that because you cannot, it's, it's Ephesians 5. In other words, biblically, as we look at this, when we think of knowledge itself, you know, you, have, you like different translations. I love that translation because for how I navigate through my life and my relationship with my spouse, absent a foundation of knowledge, I cannot be truly understanding and consider, nor can I truly submit biblically. I have to understand biblical submission to its fullness. Does that help? So, as we see in these, point of Peter's command, husbands, keep on living with your wives in accordance with that knowledge that you have as believers. Use what you have. This is your foundation as believers. In other words, live husbands, believing husbands. Here it comes. You, you kind of mentioned that last week at the end of class, John, you know, as far as going back. Ephesians 5. When we look at that, that's why that question is, it says, what does it really say? It starts with the cross. And that ultimately that example of Christ and that sacrificial giving of himself. Mark. James, James says, hey, what's the source of all your quarrels? Yeah. You. <laughs> it is your desire for your pleasures. Totally agree. It is. And I think when you look at how he goes on when he talks vessel, all of that, it, that, that points to it exact, exactly is, is that she, in this situation that she has been finally appointed as this weaker vessel. And so I have a responsibility, headship to it, but at the same time it is. The way, the way I, I want to contrast it, I agree with you, is that there is worldly, I mean, look at marriages themselves, there are some wonderful marriages that exist with non-believers. So what sets apart the Christian marriage from the rest of, in other words, or else in any relationship? And so it does. And part of it is, is that with that, that foundation, and literally that, because with knowledge also is this knowing, which we see is this intimacy. There is so, there's so much depth to it that gets there. And, and I think we see it also, as he's alluding to even the prayer life. He's talking about the word on prayer. I, I just, uh, um, I appreciate that. I just didn't, did not want to just simply say, without going back through, the, uh, looking at passages this way, they give us, because we could simply just say, well, I need to be nicer. Right. You know, sure I know you. Right. No, there is so much depth to it. And I, I think that from uh, how you navigate through, it's sort of, I've listed some passages here that really, I'll just go through these rather quickly to get through the last couple parts of this. What is the knowledge that should govern the way Christian husbands live with their wives? And obviously there's this aspect that, and even Mark, you pointed to that, which is our, our subordinating our own selfish desires. And the example that Peter gives us, it goes back to chapter 2 again, which is, he says, Christ, for this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Subordinating to our own desires. I mean, just for another, the whole Philippians 2 passage is all about subjecting 
our own desires to others and looking out for the interests of others. The Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, 33, study it. Study it and just go through and mark out. But what you see in, the, in this, this passage overall, from 22 all the way to 33, is Jesus' love. It really sets this pattern for the relationships. And, and um, here was another, my, my thinking, and I want to make sure I articulate my thinking when I say about the Christian marriage versus just the regular marriage. You know, I think that when Paul, when Paul added this, when he was, what follows in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, lost my thought on this one. But he talks about the mystery. Okay, He talks about this and it goes on from there and I can't get the exact... Um, yeah, 22. Okay, that's the verse I'm looking for. Thank you. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. We, we understand this revelation that's occurred now, but think about it from the standpoint is, is that within this, there is this something that is identifying the reality of something that was in the past has now become real here. And we see this this pattern of Christ. And I'm saying is that that's the uniqueness of the Christian marriage, is this subjection that we see in this model and the pattern of Christ and the church and his relationship with the church. Work through that. That is not reconcilable to the world. 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5, there is this intimacy, this this sexual mutual submission. But we see that in general terms, that this is again within that Christian marriage, is that there is now mutual submission. Now within the context of that, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, all, that there's, well, I understand the headship, I'm not trying to say that the husband is not, an, husband and his wife are entirely governed by mutual submission. I'm saying it exists within the relationship. This is one specific example. But simply that we recognize that. He also instructs the husbands to grant honor to his wife. And the word honor that we find in verse 7 has this meaning of attributing value to, esteeming. Honor often has to do with value, but it also has to do with importance. And this is this aspect of that we see in interest of others, especially like in Philippians 2. So why should a Christian husband honor his thoughts? Why do we place this value it's important, esteem. I like at the end of it, the Proverbs, you know, the, the Proverbs wife, you know, where she is, he actually acknowledges her building up of him in, in the gates, you know, in the city gates, and he praises her for that. She is this weaker vessel, and to me this weaker vessel is something that is divinely appointed, okay? Uh, I think the way you have to look at this, and I've listed a lot of passages, because every time you find this weaker vessel, it refers for the most part about the body, about you know, the, the person itself in passages. But as we go back all the way to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your, and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The, con- the, the word of this desire in chapter 4, when it talked about... Um, just kind of skipping around, it has this meaning of controlling, this aspect of it, and yet it says, and he shall rule over you. There's a divine appointment that would assume, in this case, the headship of the husband, and he is to honor her in the fact that she has this role. That, really, our recognition of that. So there's not an abusing perspective that I'm going to take on that in any way. 
I'm, in, I'm the head, I'm in control. That's purely the opposite of what I've been trying to say with foundational passages of her interests. You should honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. I just give this verse because I try to look, look for the things that you can connect with. And specifically, chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up your loins for, for your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you uh, for, at the, upon the, excuse me, brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When I think of this, uh, this grace of life, I think of it again within two, two ways. The way Mark described it, from the standpoint that I've had this wonderful 31 years of enjoying life with this most beautiful woman, Lori. This is disenjoined. So this is one perspective. As I think about it also, is that I look with it, her herself as being a fellow heir. Galatians, but there's male, no female. We're all one in Christ. But yet, I'm going to view that in such a way that is giving honor as this God ordained, but also in this grace of life. So there's two perspectives. Within the context of First Peter, which is about hope, too. Keeps us continually focusing on eternity. So as Christian husbands, that itself, it helps change my perspective about the relationships. In that, it should change my attitude and my actions. Like anything else that we see is when we're looking at it, by giving, recognizing that in a, in, in a Christian marriage, that both of you, and in, there are passages where Jesus is teaching, like what? There's not going to be marriage in heaven. So therefore, we're enjoying literally this, the grace of this life together, but also that in honor of that is that we will also then share together in each other. One way to look at it, how I'm looking at it in the present time, and it's, but yet I think what we're seeing here is, is that you can look way beyond that way that's manifest itself with such great love, Commitment and honoring, finally appoint, you know, recognizing that. And the result of this is really what follows in that last part of that verse, because we've already seen that the focus in the first part of, of, the, of it, which was salvation of this goal of Christ's suffering, was the salva- our salvation. The goal of the wife's, wife's submission in verses 1 and 2 was for the salvation of her husband and her conduct. And this situation is now is this unhindered prayer is that there's nothing that is holding it back within the relationship. That Corinthians passage that talks about mutual submission is an interesting tag on the back end of that verse that talks about prayer. In other words, you would, you would not engage in, in relationship while you're praying. And it's also implied there that it's together. Mark. Well, Mark, I... I I study looked at these passages, which were supportive passages that clearly looked at that uh, there was there's sin, there is self that is motivating that, and it's now looking at it from the standpoint that how can I be in communion with God? I can't come to the altar unless I go and take care of what I got. So the most that's why today I, I I got us going into this. I spent a little more time on it, but this knowledge. I mean, it's it's the it's what we've been talking about is. In all of this whole section of into chapter two and into three is what is biblical submission truly? Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. We just love you so much, and we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. And Father, we just thank you for the 
the great joy that you have in relationships that we uh, can just use your word to apply, to navigate through. Just thank you for, again for these words. And I just do pray that today that you would be honored and that, Father, that we would be changed as your servants for Christ and that would be changing our view to relationships with others. All the praise and honor.